0: All right, just a reminder, I'll be going out of town for the rest of the week tomorrow, Little little vacation to get away. Scott Stripling will be here, and I hope that everybody will show up. It's really important to have bodies here when we have a guest speaker. I know Bryce has mentioned that a couple of times, but it really is. And um, and I, I think this is just going to be fascinating. Everybody had such a... Uh, you know, great, it was a good, good learning event back when, uh, Aaron Stripling was, I mean, Aaron, um, what's his last name? Lipkin. Aaron Lipkin was here back in, in, and this is going to be like part two because he's going to talk a lot about what's going on in Shiloh and it is just amazing what's, what has been there. And if you got, had the opportunity to see the, um, uh, Route 60, the Biblical Highway film that just came out. By the way, that is supposed, I have been told that that's supposed to be available on DVD in another two or three weeks, so I would encourage you to do that. Also, another film that was out for a short time that a lot of you may not have seen is uh, The Essential Church, and that is about what happened in California when they tried to shut all the churches down and dealing with all the important constitutional and biblical issues related to that and so i encourage you that if you have not seen that uh you need to be um aware of that you know covid is not gone away and neither have those who desire to control every aspect of our lives and they are not they're just frustrated right now because they're and they're not in control so we need to understand these things. It's very important. So I encourage you to get those. And I've had some good response. A couple of people recently have, because of becoming aware of it through, um, our ministry, uh, used it with some, uh, community events. Okay. Showed it and it, it woke a lot of people up woke a lot of people up. So that's important. We need to pray for the Fort Bend County Fair Evangelism this week and the next three weekends coming up. And then Mitch Glazer will be here with Chosen People Ministries next Thursday. I'll be here then as well. I'm looking forward to seeing him. And then uh, the Builders of Israel Evangelism and Apologetic Seminar on October the 7th. And then looking forward to the picnic on the 21st. And I'd like for you all to pray for a um, good friend of this ministry. He's been here. He ha- has not lived locally, I don't think, in a long, long time, if ever. But he's been to a lot of conferences, but not in the last three or four years, and that's Dr. Wendell Bell. And he lives up in Wisconsin, and his wife texted me this afternoon that he's been sick for eight days with COVID, and they put him in the hospital uh tonight or this afternoon and so, please be in prayer for Wendell. He is uh, Wendell. Really, is a, has been a good friend and a remarkable individual. And there aren't too many people, especially those who are not formally trained. I guess he went to Bob Jones, so I guess he's got some formal training. But he's very bright, and he is self-taught in a lot of areas of theology. And then er- earned a, a Ph.D. in theolo- theology after he retired from uh, the medical field. And he's one of the few people, because we have the same background, that I can have really good theological discussions with. And it's important for pastors to have people around them. They can have really good... um, You're not trying to convince something. You're you're, you're trying to really probe into Scripture and have people who can, can talk at that level. And I've often had people like that in, in in my life in the past thank thank the lord but when you're in your 30s everybody's trying to figure out what the answers are to everything and unless you're in a pastorate where you're teaching three or four or five times a week you're not digging through the word and a lot of these guys aren't doing that anymore and maybe they didn't ever but they taught in university or or something and um, and then what happens is you get when you get in your 70s, you're more concerned with your grandkids and making your five doctor's appointments this next week and you know, all of those other things that that people I can have good discussions with that are knowledgeable are rare, harder and harder to come by. So I just really pray for, for, for Wendell just because I'm just selfish. So uh, he'll hear that and get a chuckle out of it. So uh pray for those things. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful we can come to you in prayer because you are our rock. You're our refuge. You are our strong tower. We know that we can take refuge in you because you, uh, you take us into account. You watch over us. And Father, we pray for so many of these who are on the prayer list that we prayed for during prayer meeting. Uh, so many others. We pray especially for David Dunn and for his wife Misty, for his church. We pray for the doctors who are taking care of him, pray that you would strengthen him during this time, provide a donor for his heart, and we know that this is going to be a fairly long road, so we just pray for perseverance for them. Father, we pray also for their finances. We pray, too, for Wendell and his recovery from COVID, that you would just keep him free from other infections and that you would give the doctors skill and wisdom in treating him. And that he would uh, get his strength back, and others, Charlie Clough, and some of his uh, heart problems, and and so many others. Father, we just pray for them, and uh, we, you know who they are, and to to just uh, strengthen them physically. Father, we thank you so much that we see a new generation coming along, and Father, we need more. We just uh, the as as John writes in his gospel as Jesus observed the fields are white unto harvest but the workers are few and we see need to see people who are trained so father we continue to pray for chafer seminary thank you for our our opportunity to go through this interlocked material focusing on what you have said in the scripture that we may all have a better understanding of the overview of scripture and so that we can understand the details more correctly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in lesson six. Uh, Lesson six, part one, and it's focusing on entering the new world, the new world that is in effect after they get off the ark. Nothing looked the same. Nothing was the same. There wasn't a continent that was the same. There wasn't a river that was the same. There wasn't a, a mountain or a hilltop Absolutely nothing was the same as it had been prior to the flood. The flood totally reshaped uh, the earth. And see, so many people just think of this. They, 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 I don't know how many of y'all have ever been around a river flood, but it's it, a massive river flood. And I was around a, a small river flood in Texas. But you get out where you see these huge floods on the Missouri River or the Mississippi River or some of these others you can see the power of water. And uh, I think God raised up Henry Morris to to really um, uh, be the pioneer in a lot of this uh, one of the authors of the Genesis flood back in around 1960 because he had his PhD in hydraulic engineering. Dealing with water, he understood the power uh, the power of the flood. So uh, it's a whole new world that, that they are facing when they get off the ark, and there's only eight of them um, to go out and to begin to re- reshape the world and to re- refill the world. And the first thing that happens is Noah gets off the ark, and he, he's going to offer a sacrifice, and then God's going to make a covenant uh, with him. And so this is where we are. This is what we'll cover this evening. We have our events our Old Testament events and New Testament events that give us the framework for the Bible. So everybody needs to get the blood flowing a little bit. So everybody stand up and let's go through. We haven't done this in in a couple of weeks, but we have to go through the whole thing, so you have to you have to remember this. Now, one of the reasons you have to remember this is right now we have 11 Old Testament events, but when we get down to where we're dealing with the conquest, then we're going to start adding more things. And so, by the time we get done with the Old Testament, we'll probably have around probably have around twenty, twenty-four different events, because there's a lot that we're just sort of skipping past right now. Okay, are you ready? So we have the creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. We have the call of Abraham, and then we have the. Exodus event as they have moved to Egypt. So they come out of Egypt at the Exodus event, and they go to the Mount Sinai where there are the Ten Commandments. They receive the law. And then from the law, they go to the land, and they have the conquest. And then from the conquest, you have the kingdom. And then there's the division of the kingdom. You're going to have the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And eventually, they're both so bad, God kicks them all out of the land and then he's going to call them back, and it's only a partial, a partial return. And then we come to the New Testament. There's 400 years of silence. We come to the New Testament. And then we have the birth of the Messiah. And then we have the death of the Messiah on the cross. Then he's buried for three days. And then he is resurrected from the dead. And then 40 days later he ascends to heaven. Ten days later, he sends the Holy Spirit, and that's the birth of the church. The church age ends when Jesus comes back at the rapture in the air, takes the church up with him, and that begins the uh, seven years of the tribulation. The tribulation ends when Jesus returns to the earth, and he defeats the Antichrist and the false prophet, sends them to the lake of fire, sends Satan to Tartarus, then you have the thousand-year kingdom. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom, there's a rebellion and then the great white throne judgment. All right, the whole Bible, how does everything fit together? Okay, now last time we finished up with the flood, but due to time constraints, uh, I, there was a short video that I wanted everyone to watch because this really helps explain the power and the dynamics of the flood. Now, I, we just cut this out of a presentation that, uh, that Steve, uh, Steve Austin used at the 2016 uh, pastors conference. And it's a, sort of an animation of what happened at Mount St. Helens. But if you take that one instance of Mount St. Hel- Helens and probably multiply it by Maybe 50 or 100,000 or even more volcanoes both, uh, below the ocean and on the ground that took place at the beginning of the, uh, of the flood, then you'll get a better idea of what, what this, what happened here. So, wait, wait, wait. I didn't plug the sound in.
1: There's the way I remember Mount St. Helens before the eruption, 9,677 feet tall. A very beautiful mountain, symmetrical in appearance, and it was uh, my favorite of all of the Cascade volcanoes there in Washington State. All that changed, and look at the forest around it, okay, and look at the beautiful lake. All that changed on the morning of May 18, 1980, As one-half cubic mile of summit slid away, the largest landslide in recorded history, it slid into the lake basin and uh, radically modified the landscape and released the pressure inside the volcano. The volcano exploded and uh, delivered this uh, steam uh, explosion, equivalent of 20 million tons of TNT, explosion energy, and uh, it was significant. And uh, there's the landscape. It leveled 150 square miles of landscape in about 10 minutes. And then uh, it caused this uh, wonderland for study of catastrophic process. Here's the volcano just minutes before it erupted. And here is a, a sequence of pictures that have been sequenced together to show you the collapse of the north face of the volcano. Let's see what happens here. Okay, here we go. OK, we morph the, the pictures. There it is, five minutes before the eruption. And then the landslide begins. The whole north slope gives way. Oversteepened and cracked north slope starts collapsing. And in a matter of 50 seconds, this interval uh, is shot. There you see the steam jetting out from the center of the volcano as super hot liquid magma flashed to steam. We had a gigantic steam explosion. The uh, landslide began probably with an earthquake. The earthquake launched the landslide. The landslide uncorked the and relieved the pressure inside and then allowed the steam explosion to occur. There it is before the eruption from the northwest. Okay, take a look at that, uh, that view exactly the same place after the eruption. Exactly the same place. Put the camera exactly where it was before the eruption. There's the there's the, the change. Uh, unbelievable, if you think about it. Look at the foreground here, how uh, that has uh, changed right here. And look at the profile of the volcano. Look at this right here, and that over there, and this over here, those two shoulders. Here it is before. There it is before. And um, notice the lowland uh, up front here. And of course, notice the summit. And then there it is after. Unbelievable change. One half cubic mile of summit and North Slope is gone. It's deposited out in the foreground. Uh, the forest was blasted off the ridge. That's before and after. Well, what we've seen at Mount St. Helens happened in broad daylight, and it allows uh, us to understand it a little bit. And so uh, it's been simulated, and this is a simulation of the first 50 seconds. And it's got sound. Don't let that alarm you, but it's going to be an explosion. Rocks are going to be falling. But the first thing that happens is earthquake. It's a magnitude 5.1 earthquake. The earthquake dislodges the summit and North Slope, In three rotational slides, the half cubic mile of of, uh, rock begins to slide. And then you can see the explosion and then the supersonic blast. Let's go through it here. Here it is, simulation of the first 50 seconds. Summit earthquake. Okay, rock avalanche rock avalanche. The avalanche fluidizes and becomes some kind of liquid. It flows over the landscape and then the cork is unstopped and the steam explosion occurs. The rain of rocks and then the supersonic blast that overtops the landslide material, knocks down and toasts the forest And a lot of other things are going on. How did you like that simulation? Was that kind of good? Okay, I'll show it to you one more time. <laughs> this is great. We can replay it.
0: <laughs>
1: okay, Earth, no earthquake, magnitude five point one. The whole north slope is oversteepened and cracked. It begins to slide. And then there is the, uh, the slumping. And then once the rocks are dispersed, it forms a liquefied kind of slurry. And then the pressure inside explodes. Super hot liquid water venting to the surface. And then the supersonic blast. And that knocked down the forest... Uh, Farther away from the volcano.
0: Isn't that impressive? And that's not nearly as impressive as when Krakatoa blew back in the mid-19th century. So we can just imagine that you're having on the face of the earth uh fifty hundred thousand volcanoes all like this exploding at the same time, and it shifted the earth a uh, just a small amount uh on the on its axis i mean that that's just amazing power and uh and you realize when you're watching not the animation but earlier when he's going through the photos sequence and you see how see what it looked like. Before and then, what it looked like after, that the difference between the before and after was about not, maybe a minute, maybe 90 seconds. And think about that all over that, and that rained like it had. I, well, it had never rained before, so it was like it never rained before. All right. So the focus of lesson one uh, was on God's creation and the divine institutions, especially the creator-creature distinction. Uh, the, lesson of, uh, the focus of lesson two was on um, the pagan counterfeits, the counterfeit stories of creation and the development of what this modern worldview with the, with the complete blurring of the creator-creature distinction looks like, and that's in the modern theory of evolution. Remember, it's just a theory. It's not a fact. Lesson three looks at what happened to the world and the divine institutions after the fall and how they were going to be different than they were prior to the fall, that the fall corrupted everything. It corrupt. It, it corrupted the physical planet. So many people have this sort of, it's really a platonic view that, that somehow the spiritual doesn't affect the physical. And yet what we see is that, that it, because of sin, animals' whole morphology, their digestive systems, Every, everything changed. Uh, human beings changed. Their psychology changed because before they weren't sinners and now they are sinners. And before that, they were uh, perfect and they were focused on God. And then when they disobeyed God, it was all about me. And it's only gotten worse. So lesson four looked at how uh, Christians have responded to the uh, scientific discovery that the earth is really millions or Millions and hundreds of millions of years old, and the bottom line always has to be: Are you going to judge your experience by the Bible? Or are you going to judge the Bible by your experience? Now, see, that's the problem in psychology, is everybody wants to judge the Bible by their experience. Well, that's the same thing they did with science. You go out, you have an experience with what looks like a, a, an animal that's been fossilized in a certain strata, and so you have an experience with that, and you're going to say, oh, well, it's in this kind of strata, so it must be this many thousands of years old, and then the Bible must must therefore be wrong. You're using your, your experience to determine whether the Bible is right or wrong, and that always leads to a bad ending. Lesson 5 was on the global flood, and it's just been so power-packed, I mean, just packed with details the last couple of weeks, because there really is so much to learn there, and the reason there's so much to learn there, and that we have to spend so much time on it, is because the devil and his disciples have been spending so much time over the last 300 years developing theories down to minutia to show that the Bible's wrong, And that it can't be historically accurate and there never was such a thing. And so that has, that's always been the way, uh, the Bible has been clarified in the history of Christianity is like in the early church in the post apostolic period. Nobody's asking or answering any detailed questions. But once, once the opponents really ramp up by the end of the second century, then the theologians come along and that's called the peer to the theologians. They have to answer these questions and say, "Okay, you're right. We think Jesus is God, we think the Father's God, and we think the Holy Spirit's God, but we only have one God." Uh, we have to explain that. And that, and we stand on the shoulders of so much that's developed that we forget the struggles that every major point of doctrine that we have in our doctrinal statement was probably fought over for several hundred years before it was, was finalized. So now we're going to look at what happens after the flood, once the flood ended. So last time we looked at five basic principles. Now this is important because this, these principles on the left, the five lessons are true all the way through history. God always gives grace before judgment. There was grace before judgment before the flood. There's grace before God's judgment on Egypt. He sent Moses there with the truth. There was grace before God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He gave them like 400 years to to uh, straighten up. There was grace before judgment on the destruction of the northern kingdom. Uh he sent Elijah and Elisha and and hundreds of other prophet, prophets. And they rejected it. Same thing happened in the southern kingdom. And it's happening right now. We see grace before judgment. I think the big judgment that's coming, the next really big judgment, is the tribulation. And there's grace during the the church Age. It's a whole period of grace before the tribulation. And then God's going to remove the church before that, and so that is going to be uh, a time of great judgment. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. And so the church is not going to go through the tribulation because by analogy, we have to understand that Jesus is not a wife beater. So he's not going to put his bride through the tribulation. So there's always a decision who to save and who to judge. So there's going to be a decision made. With Noah's ark, it was those who would get on the ark would be saved, and those who did not get on the ark would perish. And God had to make a decision as to how that was going to take place. And that decision is the third point, only way of salvation. So in each one of these judgments, there's always this issue of some are going to be saved and some are going to be judged. And it always boils down to God's way or man's way. And so the ark was designed by God. It was completely waterproof because they they completely coated it with a a waterproofing of pitch uh, prior to the time the rain started, and then God sealed the door. And when God seals a door, you can't open it. Nothing can open it. Nothing is more powerful than the omnipotence of God. And then the fourth point is the world change. So after these huge judgments that have taken place in history, everything's different afterward. And so the global flood changed the whole world. And so the bottom line, the fifth point is how to be saved. It's always by faith in God's promises. Do what God says to do, and you're either going to be physically delivered or you will be spiritually uh, delivered. So what we're going to look at tonight is, uh, after the flood, the parties in the new world. I mean, the parties in the new world covenant, that is, uh, what are the two parties? You have God on the one hand, mankind on the other hand, but it's not just mankind. It's a covenant we'll see that God makes with all of the animals, all of the groups of animals that were, uh, where they had all their relatives destroyed in in the flood. Then we'll look at the signing of the new world covenant. And uh then we ask the question. These are those boxed-out sections that they have in the notes. And the question to answer is, isn't the rainbow a symbol of gay rights? What's going on there? Third, the legal terms of the New World Covenant, or the Noahic Covenant, as it's typically called. But I think for a lot of kids, uh younger they are, it's, it's hard for adults to say Noahic. So they opted for something a little easier for kids to say, calling it the New World Covenant. And then there's a boxed in question, is there really a God? And the question then is, isn't what we see in nature just natural law? Now, there's a lot more to this question than you or I are going to be able to cover in the next three or four months, because the concept of natural law is a philosophical concept that is just loaded with all kinds of good and bad stuff, so we have to just really simplify it. And then we'll see what happens after the flood to the divine institutions, and we'll see that there's a new divine institution that is established. The first divine institution, if you remember, was responsible choice, and now we get addressed to the question of God's, uh, basically it's, it is instruction. I wouldn't say it's a command, but it's an instruction. To, now you can eat all of the animals. They're given to you for food, which that wasn't true before the flood. So now you have a question. And if God said it's okay to eat animals, how does that apply to vegetarian philosophy and vegan philosophy, which says it's not okay to eat. Where does that come from? Who's the father of lies? Who's always got an alternative view to God? Now, we're going to deal with all the questions related to that tonight before done, and we probably won't get to marriage, the second divine institution until next time. So here's the contract. Now, a basic term, which you're trying to help kids, and I bet, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with younger kids, you, uh, probably have some sort of object lesson on making a contract to help them understand what a, what a contract is. And you can use a lot of different things. You see, they're familiar with the fact, uh, not too familiar yet, but they're familiar with the fact that their parents have to pay bills. And most bills that we have to pay are based upon some sort of contractual relationship with the electric company, with the gas company, uh, with the mortgage company, with the credit card company. And so there's some sort of legally binding contract that says that these are the responsibilities of, for example, in a mortgage, this is a responsibility of the lender and the mortgage holder, And then this is the responsibilities of the one who is paying off the mortgage. So it's a contract. And so you see that there will be parties to the contract. There will be the party of the first part, which is God, and the party of the second part. But there's two different kinds of contracts, we'll see. So it starts in verse 9. But as for me, God says, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, so now we have it's it's not just Noah and his family, but his descendants after him, so that is there anybody in this room that's excluded from that? I don't think so. Everybody goes back to Noah, and everybody in this room just about goes back to Japheth for the most part. There may be a couple of odd. DNA particles floating around in somebody's background, but for the most part, we're all descendants of Japheth. So he's going to establish his covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature. You know, when you read through this in your Bible, from starting in Genesis 6, every time you see the word every and every time you see the word all, you ought to circle it in your Bible. Because that tells you that when the flood came, it killed every animal, and it covered all of the earth, and those statements are repeated over and over and over again. So now there's going to be a contract with every living creature that's what? That's with you. So that means all those that are coming off the off the ark. The cruise is over, and there's a new contract. The birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth, remember, the fish weren't part of it. They survived. They had quite a rollicking good time. So the every beast of the earth with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the of the earth. So you have every living creature, uh, every beast of the earth, and then every beast of the earth. So that's three times there. So... The next verse, verse nine says, I hereby, God speaking, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all your animals. Oh, that's a different translation there. That's the, uh, that's the new living version that I put in there, just repeating the other verses. So here's a question. The use of covenant here, this is the first time the word appears in the Hebrew text, first time it appears in the English text. There's not a, there's not a covenant mentioned before that. So is, that is the first use of the covenant. But is it the first covenant? So see, there's a lot of people who say this is the first covenant. Is that true? Is that false? Now, you've always t- heard me teach that there's, there's a, a an Edenic covenant or creation covenant. I prefer to call it the creation covenant. And then there's the Adamic covenant. But it doesn't use the word covenant, so how would you prove that those are covenants? It goes back to a time honored principle. I don 't know. maybe it was a Texan that came up with it. If it walks like a duck, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. That second hesitations three one, okay. So that's my point, is you have these initial commands and promises that God makes in Genesis chapter 1, and there are five commands in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Those are five commands. Then in Genesis 2.15, there's two more commands, tend and keep the garden. And then there's a prohibition about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not to eat that. But what God said before that was, I have given you every herb and every tree for food except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may, And in Genesis 2.16, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden except one. So God has provided a sufficient and abundant source of nourishment. You don't even have to go very far to go to the grocery store. You can just walk out of whatever you're, you're, wherever you're sleeping, stand up and reach up and pull fruit off the tree. You don't even have to walk over to H-E-B or drive five miles or ten miles if you live out in the country, something like that. And then God made the woman to help the man because he couldn't do it alone. Now, that's in perfect environment. Then what happens? The creation co- covenant has to be modified because of sin. But the main idea is still there. Man is still God's, in the image of God, and he's still God's representative, but now he's, he's gonna to try to exercise dominion over a corrupt planet. And all, everything's been corrupted by sin because of his foolish, sinful decision. So number one, the man was to serve in the garden, but now the ground is hostile to him. It's gonna produce uh, thistles and thorns. And he's gonna to have to sweat. Second, the man's responsibilities have become burdensome. Tending and keeping the garden, watching over things. It's gonna become difficult. It's fighting, fighting back. The creation now is fighting back. Third, the woman is, who is desired, designed to assist is now gonna, she's gonna get in a tussle with him as to who, who's wearing the, you know, who's, who's going to be wearing the sheepskin in the family? Then you have, um, the painless procreation for the woman, but prior to the uh, fall, painless labor now is going to be painful labor. And then the animal kingdom is also affected. So that's what we, that's what we see, but they're still to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All of that's still there. Now, we come to the new covenant with, the, with Noah, and the command is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The animals are to have dread of humans. Every moving thing will be food now, and um, they aren't to eat. When it says, don't eat the animals with the blood in them, blood circulating is a sign of life. And so you're to drain the blood. Make sure these, that the animal is dead so you're not eating a living animal. Uh, murderers will be executed, and uh, this is the delegation of of civil judgment from God to man. It's a foundation for government. It's a really good thing, no matter how old the ki- your kids are, is to begin to teach them that, see, this is where God establishes government. And we have different kinds of government. There's city government, there's county government, there's state government, and and federal government. And so all of that is important. Now, the older they get, you can start to explain to them that we live in a wonderful country. You have Fourth of July. You have Constitution Day. You have uh, President's Day. You have these other national holidays. And you can begin to explain to them that these men who founded this nation were influenced by the Bible, and they used that as their primary guide to establish this this. Country and to d- build a government that was as close as they could build it to biblical standards. Now we get back to the issue of is this is Genesis one a covenant? Is Genesis three another covenant? And so you have a statement in Hosea, uh, Hosea six seven. The first line is the New Living Translation, which gets the key word I think translated correctly. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. So who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. That you broke my covenant just like Adam did. But you have other translations, like the second one is New King James, but like men, they transgress the covenant. Men, plural. In the Hebrew, it's just Adam, which can be mankind, like a a collective noun. But when the question I ask with that, okay, so you're going to say mankind transgressed the covenant. Well, what covenant was that? It wasn't the Noahic covenant. It is a covenant that precedes the Noahic covenant. What covenant is it? There has to be a covenant before that, even though it's not called a covenant. And the covenant that is broken seems to be the one that, that, that broke with Adam, that Adam broke. And in Adam I'll die, Paul says in Romans 5. So it doesn't matter whether you translated Adam or mankind. Ultimately, you're both talking about what Adam did because it's a covenant that is prior to the covenant with Noah. So that is why I say that, that the covenant that was broken is the covenant that that is embedded in the language of what God is telling Adam and Eve to do in Genesis chapter 1 and and Genesis chapter 2 and so they bro- they broke it so here we have a timeline you have the creation the fall flood and now we're at after the flood you have the broken relationship with Yahweh because of man's sin at the fall and now, and then it got worse and worse and worse. Remember, the imagination of their hearts was evil continuously, the Scripture says. And so now there's threat of a further broken relationship happening. God hit the reset button, but he's going to have to do something that will restrain sin. And so what he does is he delegates responsibility for for judging and punishing sin, and that's what is part of the covenant, Genesis nine nine. But as for me, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Uh, this is the one we just read. So it's uh, with you and your descendants after you, with every living being, the living thing that got off the ark, and all your descendants. Okay. So the parties in the new covenant, this covenant, covenant was made by God with Noah and his descendants, all mankind that comes from him, and animals that got off the ark. So unlike future covenants that will come, it includes all of the animals. Now this is really an interesting thing to think about because God is making this promise, and what's the core promise? The core promise is that he's not going to uh, destroy the earth, destroy the planet again uh, by flood. Now, what's involved in that? If I'm going to say I'm not going to let it, the earth flood again, what do I have to be able to control? I have to be able to control the weather. But flooding can also come from down below. So we can have uh, tides that rise. We can have tsunamis. So I've got to be able to control tsunamis. I've got to be able to control the tides. What causes the tides? The movement of the sun and the moon, primarily the moon. So I've got to be able to control the solar system No human being can do this. This is an aspect of God's omniscience. Only God, who is, I mean, not his omniscience and his omnipresence, only God can control this. So the way he shows, he signs his covenant is that he is going to put a bow in the air. That is how he uh, signs it. And only he signs it. Noah doesn't sign it. It's what is called an unconditional covenant. That means this is what I'm going to do for you no matter what you do. If you are disobedient, if you don't follow any of my directions, if you rebel against me, whatever happens, I'm never going to destroy the earth by water again. God bound himself to that promise and did not bind man to anything. They had obligations and responsibilities, but it didn't affect the fulfillment of the covenant. So God says, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living, living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Notice that God says, I set my rainbow. There's an implication there that rainbow already existed We'll come back to that. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living thing, every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. That's the promise. He'll destroy it again by fire, but not by water. Now, there's other places that we see the rainbow in the scripture that give us a little bit of a hint that, that God chose the rainbow possibly because this is something that is related to his very presence. And we see this in two passages, one in the old Testament and one in the new Testament in Ezekiel 1:28, Ezekiel sees the throne of God and he says that it's, and he compares it to a rainbow. He says like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it, the thr- all around the throne of God. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. So when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. Then we get a similar picture, same throne room, so of course it's similar, in Revelation 4, verse 3, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone. These are uh, valuable, stone, valuable stones in, uh, uh, like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So the rainbow, either I'm, I'm not sure whether the throne the throne is like an emerald or the rainbow is a greenish rainbow, not sure. So all of that is is present. So what we see is God is making a signature with something that seems to be integrally related to his own presence in his throne room. So that when we see a rainbow, we should be thinking about the presence of God, and we should be thinking about the promise of God. And uh, what I always say is there's basically three things there, that you're going to have to kill or execute murderers, you're going to eat meat, and God's not going to destroy the earth again because it's all part of the same covenant. And so everything that God states in the covenant are to be remembered, not just that he won't destroy the earth, but that's the, the primary thing. And I think one reason for this, and I've heard Charlie go through the meteorological details, which uh, you would expect a meteorologist to be able to do, that uh, that you didn't have a rainbow prior to the flood because you don't have the the... Water cycle before the flood that you do after the flood. You know, evaporation, uh, and wa- as water vapor, then condensation, then precipitation. And in the upper atmospheres, when, in the clouds, when it reaches a certain temperature and you've got this mix of ice crystals with water, that's when it allows the refraction of the light from the sun, uh, to break apart and we see it as, as a rainbow. So that's another evidence that prior to the flood, there wasn't rain as we know it today. So this is what Genesis describes, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. Well, how did it get wet? How did the plants get moisture? Well, God provided a mist that went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. God designed an automatic sprinkler system in the original earth. And it never broke until the fountains of the deep broke apart. Now, we get to that first box where they – this is on page four of the notes – where you get this question of, well, today the rainbow is is seen to be a symbol for gay rights. Now, how you teach this depends on the age of children, because some of them may be too young, and you don't need to go into this, but you as a parent or as a teacher in Sunday school know when it is age appropriate. But what kids know today... I'm looking out at a lot of you, and we're of the same generation, and I don't know about you, but I didn't even understand what a homosexual was till I was almost out of college. And that was, you know, not that long ago. So things have changed a lot, and we thank Bill Clinton for a lot of that. Um, So what's happened? And what's happening is that Satan always counterfeits what God does. Satan always takes what God does, and he tries to use it or twist it to his own uh, bad purposes. And they want to wipe out any memory of God. That's the whole thing is people should not be thinking about God when they see a rainbow. They should be thinking about homosexuals, Sodom and Gomorrah. Isn't that amazing? That's, and most people, that's all they know right now. And so this is, uh, it, it wipes out the memory of God and the memory of the flood and what God did. And this is the kind of thing that's described in Romans 1.18 down to 23, that God's existence is revealed from heaven, but not just his existence, his wrath. That is a reference to his uh, judicial punishment of man in history, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God is punishing it, whether you see it or not. And what is it that they characteristically do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know God exists, so they camouflage it, they counterfeit it, they talk about it, assign different meaning to it. And then Paul says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. The basics of God's character is known within every single human being. They've buried it deep in the basement, inside of a basement, inside of another basement. And everything's got a big padlock on it so nobody can open those doors and God can't get out. But God's always down there every now and then. He beats his drum and they get all nervous. And every time they hear somebody talk about the Bible, uh, they they hear that rumbling deep in their own soul, and they try to squash it. They don't want that. It makes them angry. And so the Scripture says when you're witnessing to somebody who is saying there's a, they're an avowed atheist, they're not. Deep in their heart of hearts, they know God exists. All you need to learn is how to say the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit's going to use uh, according to uh, John chapter 16. Now, be, uh, because what well, may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So it's manifest in them, and he's shown it to them on the outside. So you've got a double witness, internal and external. For since the creation of the world. Now it's explaining how he shows it. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Clearly seen. Notice that. I love that juxtaposition invisible is clearly seen, so that they're without excuse, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. They're ingrates but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they got earned multiple PhDs in science, in geology, biology, physics, but they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Instead of worshiping the creator, they began to worship the creature. Now you have these same kinds of things showing up and various mythological traditions. In the Norse tradition, the rainbow is believed to be a bridge going from the earth into the realm of the gods. Then in the middle panel, you have uh, some Chinese traditions that believe the rainbow is a double-headed dragon. They must be very pessimistic. You know, they're not at all like the Irish, The Irish have a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'd rather go for the pot of gold than be surprised by a double-headed dragon. So this is a dragon who's the mediator between heaven and earth. So who's the great dragon? Satan. Revelation, chapter uh, uh, it's 12 or 13. Um, And then you have various uh, native people who see that the rainbow is a multicolored serpent. Is Quetzalcoatl a multicolored serpent, Pam? Yeah. That's the uh, dragon in, in, Mexic- in Aztec mythology. Okay, so what are the legal terms? What are the legal terms? God establishes his covenant with him. With you, rather, with uh, Noah and his family. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. He repeats himself. Never again. It's not like James Bond. Never say never again. Remember the film, Wake Up. Never again. When God says never again, it means never again. So the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. So you see, the creation covenant's an everlasting covenant. It just got modified twice. But it's the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So we see God's control there. We have in this chart, he controls the oceans and tides, which impact uh, flooding. He, in the moon, he, uh, the moon's gravity controls the tides or affects the tides. And so if God were just in charge of the earth, it wouldn't affect the tides. So he effect- controls the moon. And then, uh, even asteroids exert a certain uh, gravitational pull on the earth. So God can control the solar system in order to fulfill this prompt. Promise. So he can't be in control of just a little bit of nature. He has to be in control of all of nature. And what this shows is that God is not only all-powerful, but in order to be able to use his power correctly, he has to be omniscient. And to be uh, able to exercise this over all of the solar system, he has to be omnipresent so that's where you see the function of those three three attributes. Now, the other thing we see here is that this is a an unconditional promise. The box on the left is a conditional promise. If you obey me, then I won't let this happen again. But this is a conditional promise. I will do it no matter how bad or disobedient or rebellious or evil you are. And so this reminds us of what God, uh, what happened after they came off the ark. Noah worshiped the Lord. He built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma I don't know about you, but that tells me as a Texan that God likes barbecue. Smell the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that means that that from the time he is young, because he is born, his the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. But God will not destroy the planet again like that. There's another couple of verses that we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 9 and 10. Now, one thing I want to point out here, just so you remember this, is we have the story of the worldwide flood, the Hebrew is mabul. It's only used to describe the worldwide flood of of Noah. And yet it is referenced in the Psalms. It is referenced in Isaiah. It is referenced in the New Testament in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus mentions it in Matthew 24. And it's mentioned uh, mentioned again in 2 Peter chapter 2. And Second Peter chapter three, so this is what this, this idea of interlock the Bible is interconnected and interdependent. you can 't say well, the flood didn't happen without it having an impact on a number of other areas of the Bible. If you can't trust Genesis, then you can't trust Isaiah because Isaiah believes in in, in the Genesis story. And if you can't trust that, then you can't trust Jesus in Matthew 24. You can't trust him, then you can't trust John's prophecy. So the Bible just starts to crumble. You can't just pull, start pulling at different threads without it having an impact. So in Isaiah 54, 9 and 10, Isaiah wrote, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall not depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. I misread that. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Covenant of peace there will refer to that future new covenant. Psalm twenty nine ten, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, the Mabul, and the Lord sits as king forever. Now, there hasn't been any flood since. We can count on that. You can make decisions based on the fact that there will not be another flood like that. That is called predictability. It is also referred to as stability. This is what is said in Genesis 8.22. Genesis 8.22 is the foundation of modern science. Probably the most embarrassing fact of modern science by a lot of modern scientists, and I'm speaking of 20th century and 21st century scientists, is that the founders of modern science who lived during the time of the, of the uh, Enlightenment were believers, almost every one of them were believers, and they believed in a literal Genesis, and they believed in um, a young Earth, and they believed in a literal worldwide flood, and because of this verse, they believed that that you could observe certain things in God's creation, and you could predict certain things on the basis of the past. Because of stability in God's creation, but they understood that there were there were uh, boundaries to that. That's what Peter was talking about in Second Peter chapter three. scoffers will come and say that all things continue as they once were, and uh, and he's talking about the, you know, all. There, there's never been any changes. The problem with uniformitarianism is that it's the basis for prediction. If you went back to let's say 1950, could you have predicted Mount St. Helens? I mean, to in detail. No, because you would have built a graph based on past action and then you would extrapolate it to the future and the future would not have a hiccup in 1980. See, that's the problem with uniformitarianism. At best, you get guesswork into the future because there's always things that go very different from what you imagined. Like all those times you got up in the morning, you were in a hurry, you were going to do something, you are either going to work or you are going to do something fun, and you got in the car and you either put the key in the ignition or you pressed the button, and it went, <laughs> and that's all you got. And so you spent the next four hours on plan B, waiting for AAA to show up. Or Plan C, walking down to the nearest uh, auto parts store in order to pick up a new battery and then walk it back. So, see, you, you can't judge the future on the pattern of the past. It may happen a lot of the time, but some of the time it really doesn't. So the summary of the New Covenant is fourfold. The two parties are God on the one hand and mankind and the animals on the other hand. The signatories are God alone, with the rainbow. The promises are no future global floods. The type of covenant, it's an unconditional promise. God will not destroy the earth by water again. So this is it. There will be a final judgment, and that will be by fire. So while earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, some summers are longer than other summers, and day and night shall not cease. So, then there's a box. Is there really a God? And the conflict is naturalism today. Everything that we see developing is all the result of the worldview of naturalism, which means there's nothing outside of the physical material world. There is no God. And supernaturalism is the view that there is a God and God is intimately involved in the details of the world. So how do we see that? Well, we see that from scripture. Now, this is very important because when you're teaching this to kids, this gets into the whole area of, of, uh, of climate change and global warming and environmentalism. And if you want to study some more on this, there's an excellent DVD series put together by, uh, an organization uh, that is made up of, of earth scientists, Christian earth scientists, and they have done the in-depth dive. And it's, what is it? Somebody here knows it. It's something about the green dragon, slaying the green dragon. The green dragon is, of course, environmentalism. The dragon brings in the idea of Satan. And so that is put out. I think you can probably get it on a number of websites, but I think that's the name of it, Slaying the Green Dragon. We'll get the title right in the description of the lesson. So, in Hebrews 1-3, we're told that, that Christ, Christ is the brightness of God's, the Father's glory and the express image of God the Father's person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Christ, I suppose, it's because what? It's by God's word that everything was created. In Colossians one fifteen, Christ is the firstborn. Now, that doesn't mean first in terms of chronological order. It means first in terms of preeminence. Because you could have a firstborn son that wasn't chronologically the first one born in the Old Testament. But he's the one designated as the heir to get the double portion. So it has to do with preeminence. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, that relates to the angels, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that's the uh, table of organization for the uh, demons, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. See, over here, he upholds all things. There's not anything any human being or group of human beings can do to change that. He upholds it by the word of his power. He's omnipotent. That you can trash the planet and it's just going to be nasty. But you're not going to destroy it. Because Christ is upholding it. He sustains it. That's what Colossians 1, 15 to 16 is talking about. And Matthew five forty five again, you have this, this cycle, uh, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. I'm not going to say that. The sun rose up on all of the Christians in this country, and sun rose up this morning on all of the unbelievers. It rained on Christians, and it rained on unbelievers. And hurricanes happened to believers and unbelievers. So All of this is ultimately part of God's grace. So the comparison between uh, biblical worldview and pagan worldview, God says, I'm sustaining the world and everything in it. Man says, we can save the world. It's falling apart. It's getting warmer. The sky is falling but mankind can't do anything about it. He's not omnipotent. Remember, the, 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 the people that are telling you that they can save you from global warming are the people that are saying they can do it if you just pay double your taxes. All they want is your money. It's a It's a scam. I promise that the earth will always be able to grow food. That's God's promise. Now, what's more, what's better than that? What's more powerful than God's promise? Pagan worldview says, well, it's going to get warmer and warmer, and the plants are going to die, and, and we're not going to have enough food. Anybody remember the predictions in the late 60s that by 1975, because of population growth, that we would run out of food and there would be a massive starvation on the planet? I remember hearing lectures on that at a youth group in, by a seminary student. Of course, he was tying it to, to something happening within the tribulation and related to that. But, uh, third, man caused the fall of nature when man sinned against God and fell. But man's lifestyle choices are destroying nature. I mean, so many, many different things. My, my favorite is back when they had the thing with the, um, uh, what was the owl uh, in California? The spotted owl, right? You know how? You know what the wingspan is on one of the spotted owls? Six foot. Okay, my wingspan is just about six foot because that's how tall I am. That's how the, w- the wingspan. So what was the solution? Well, we need to. Qu- they live in the forest, so we need to quit. Cutting down all the, all the underbrush and everything so we can leave their habitat naturally. What happened? What has happened? So they live off of the vermin that scurry around the floor of the forest. Well, with all this underbrush and a six foot wingspan, they can't get to their food. And there are hundreds of examples. The other one that is my favorite because I I I'm not that bright, but when back in the 70s when they said, "Oh, we got to save the rainforest, we got to save the trees, we're going to quit using paper for grocery bags, we're going to use plastic," and I'm thinking, "Plastic's worse." I don't get it. Environmentalists always come up with a solution that's worse than the than what what their correction is. I'm just waiting to see what's going to what the problem's going to be with the cloth bags they're telling everybody to buy. So, God says man's more valuable than his created world, and and um, the pagan worldview says that nature is more valuable than man. Here's one of my favorite covers from Time magazine, and this was back in 1973. I actually remember this, and the 70s were cold in Texas. I remember going up to Camp Penile to work up there as a wrangler on Thanksgiving family days in around 1973 and 74, and we'd always camp out, and um, it'd be 20 degrees Thanksgiving morning, and there, there would be not just frost, but ice hanging from trees, like three out of four times. We're in shorts most of the time now, so it was just, it was a colder decade, so they were anticipating we're going to have a big freeze. So what are God's instructions? Well, next time we'll come back and we're going to look at how the divine institutions are affected after the flood. Okay? Anybody have any questions or comments or There's so much information. You can go I, the other day I went to answers in Genesis and I just started going through different categories of things. They were asking question, they were answering questions that never occurred to me. You can get lost and spend days like that. I I actually know of a couple that that's how they spent some of their initial dates, was just going to ICR and answers in Genesis to get answers to questions. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we can study your word and come to understand uh, how this is foundational. These 11 chapters in Genesis at the beginning are foundational to the rest of the Scripture And we see this pattern of these five principles that are so important because they are revealed again and again and again, and ultimately to picture uh, the reality of our eternal salvation. So Father, help us as we understand these things and the details that we can communicate them, especially to our children, our grandchildren, teach it in uh, Sunday school, and above all, just, just solidify our own thinking and our own confidence in Scripture. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.